Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. And it is a great privilege to open up the Word of God again today on Sunday morning. Uh, we've just been blessed for these past several months to have the opportunity to look into one of the most important part of Scripture. I mentioned a few weeks ago that there are certain uh, parts of the Scripture that you might overlook, and there are some Scriptures that are defining, and as you're reading the Bible, you might skip around to different parts, and you may think that there are some parts in the Bible that you can do without. Well, this is certainly a part of Scripture that we cannot do without. These are uh, Scriptures in which Jesus gives us defining characteristics of kingdom citizens. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he was speaking to a religious crowd that was content to believe that they were worshiping the true God. They had confidence in their religious leaders that they were telling them the truth. And so they were satisfied that they did have the truth of God's Word. And yet for all of their satisfaction in believing they had the truth, yet there was still some dissatisfaction because the scribes and the Pharisees, who were their religious teachers, had put upon them grievous burdens to be borne. And they really didn't have any hope that they could actually live up to the standards that the scribes and Pharisees had set. Now, it was Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount to expose the hypocrisy of their teachings and to show that the standards that they had set were not actually God's standards. In men's eyes, it looked like the standards of the uh, scribes and Pharisees was very high, and yet, according to God's Word, those standards were not nearly high enough because what God demanded from the people was perfection. And the best efforts of imperfect people are never going to lead us into perfection. Perfection only comes through the life of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, and then having faith in that sacrifice of Christ. Now, the type of righteousness that God demanded is explained in chapter 5. And there, Jesus was straightening out their uh, theology. Their practices were wrong because their theology was wrong. And because their theology was wrong, their worship was also wrong. Uh, that's because if you don't have a right view of God, then it's impossible for you to worship God in the right way. And so in the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus begins to straighten out this problem of their worship. Jesus was very good at using examples, and we saw that in chapter 5, where he gave six examples of substandard righteousness. Then he comes into chapter 6, and Jesus is also using examples to show that their worship is wrong. And what he did was he summed it all up into three basic areas of man's worship that, that covers the entirety of his religious life. And that would be the way that he worships God in relation to others, the way that he worships God in relation to, uh, uh, to God himself, and the way that he worships God in relation to himself. Now, the three examples that Jesus gives are of, are of uh, the alms that we give, or giving and praying and fasting. The praying... Or uh, let me start with the giving, because that's where Jesus starts. Uh, giving is worship to God in relation uh, to others. And praying is worship to God in relation to God or to deity. And then how the people fasted related to their acts of personal devotion. And that's the way that you worship God according to self. Now today, we're going to take up the third example of righteous religion in personal devotion. And we find this in verses 16 through 18 in Matthew chapter 6. 
Now you'll notice if you've been with us in the study that we're skipping a few verses, but don't worry about that because we're going to come back to them. And a little bit later on, we're going to do an in-depth study about prayer. But I've decided that we would uh, skip down to verse number 16 today because I want to tie uh, this particular example of worship to the previous two examples that are in the chapter. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're reading today from Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse number 16. And Jesus says here, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word today. And we thank you that we're able to open up the word of God and to learn uh, from your word what you would have us to know. Bless the message today. Bless our people. And may we receive the word of God with gladness. And may we learn something that will help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today the subject of the message is fasting. And about, what is it, 22 minutes before 12 right now, probably not too many of you are too enamored with the thought of fasting. Uh, fasting is not something that you want to do. You come to Brian Baptist Church, and, and you'll notice even in our bulletin today that much of what we do uh, is centered around food or centered on food. Uh, for instance, on this coming Wednesday night, we have our snack shack. And so anybody who comes to Brian Baptist Church would probably never get the idea that we ever believe in abstaining from food. Uh, Brother Dalton is, is fond of taking Paul's uh, statements and where he talks about buffeting his body, and he says, what I do is I buffet my body. And uh, I think many of us are guilty of that. But in all my years of church, I, I don't think uh, that I've ever heard an entire sermon that was devoted to fasting. Now, I've been around church a long, long time, but I can't recall where uh, either my dad or other preachers that I heard ever got up and preached an entire sermon about fasting. Now, I, I've covered this somewhat in Sunday morning forum class a few years ago, but I've yet to preach a sermon on this particular subject. Well, that changes today, because what happens when you decide that you're going to teach the Bible verse by verse, you're going to come up with subjects that maybe you don't want to talk about, or maybe not your favorite things to talk about, and maybe even confusing things to talk about. But such is the nature of God's Word. These things are put in the Word of God for a purpose, and we need to learn what that purpose is. Now, Jesus uh, had a reason for teaching about fasting, and since he taught about it, that means that we need to do this too. Now, fasting is certainly a misunderstood subject. Not many people know what the Bible is talking about, and the confusion that we have today over the subject is no less significant than the confusion that they had in Jesus' day. Now, in their time, fasting was an act of worship. Now, giving is an act of worship, praying is an act of worship, and fasting was one of those acts of devotion that they did that was a part of their worship. Now, here in this particular scripture, Jesus does not really go into the validity of fasting. 
In other words, he doesn't tell us whether it's right to fast, wrong to fast. He doesn't say whether there's a command about fasting. But rather, he's taking the problem that they have with worship, and he addresses that. And it stands good for all of those acts of devotion that they did. And so what Jesus is trying to do here is to correct their worship in the areas that they had gone so wrong. Now, I believe that what we need to do is to expand upon it a little bit. And we need to, I think, discover what the Bible actually teaches about fasting. And that's because in their culture, they understood some of these things. They practiced it often. But in our culture today, we hardly practice it at all. And so I think we need to go into the Word of God and and see what does the Bible actually say about this. Should we fast? Should we not fast? And what is the right way to do it? Now today, I'm not actually going to get into so many of those things. That'll come in part number two of the message. That'll come in a couple of weeks after Christmas. But what we're talking about here, and what we're most concerned about, is personal acts of devotion. And again, that is represented by fasting. So I think that the first thing that we need to do to try to discover a little bit about the subject is to go into the Old Testament and see what was done there. So we're going to look at first today the Old Testament practice of fasting. And contrary to what many people believe, the Old Testament has no commands about personal fasting. And I mean that the Old Testament never gave a command that said that fasting was to be a part of an individual's everyday life. This was not something that they practiced or or God told them to practice in their families. And so uh, the father, who was the spiritual head of the household, he didn't spend time talking to his children about about fasting and saying, well, this is something that needs to be a part of your personal everyday life. This is part of your devotion to God. But rather than being a personal command, fasting in the Old Testament was actually a corporate command. There was only one time that we find uh, that they were to fast, only one time in the year. And Israel was told to fast on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, uh, the whole nation of Israel would abstain from food. Now, it was important to them for, for two purposes. Here's why they did this. First of all, fasting recognized the need for repentance from sin. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament was a day that all of Israel was called upon to admit and to confess and to repent of their sins against God. And so we find the people uh, on the Day of Atonement pleading with God about the sins of their nation. They recognized that they had not kept God's holy law and they knew that when they sinned against God that God would not bless the nation. And so they were to recognize the very serious nature of sin, that God is holy. And sin in God's people does not reflect the character of God. And so on this day, Israel would begin to mourn because of their sin. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah pleaded with Israel about their sins, and he said, you need to repent. He said in Isaiah 59, verse 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now there, Isaiah is calling for national repentance from Israel because God would not bless their nation. He would not preserve them unless they had repented of their sins and abandoned those sins and come back to God. Now as a symbol of their repentance... Israel would fast corporately across the whole nation from tribe to tribe, from the least to the greatest. All of the nation was called upon to fast at this one time 
one time in the year when they celebrated the Day of Atonement. But there was also a second purpose associated with the Day of Atonement and fasting, and that is that fasting recognized the need to be reconciled to God. The Day of Atonement was a day of sacrifices. Now, there are many sacrifices that we find throughout the Old Testament, many different times that it was done. Uh, The tabernacle and temple worship, there was always sacrifice that was going on. But at this one particular time, that Day of Atonement, this was a particular time that a fast was proclaimed because this was a day when atonement is made for the entire nation. Now, atonement in this context means reconciliation. And the only way that the people could be reconciled to God was through sacrifice. Now, I'm sure you understand that the point of all of that was to point to the one-time sacrifice that would be made by Jesus. Jesus would come into the world, and he would be a sacrifice for our sins, and through that sacrifice, we would be reconciled to God. Now, what that means is that we come to peaceful terms with God based upon our belief in Christ's sacrifice. It was a one-time-for-all sacrifice of the cross. And so the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement, they pictured that. And the people were commanded to fast so that they would be vividly reminded that God must be satisfied because of sin. See, to have fellowship with God, sin has to be removed. The reason for the enmity of God with man is because of our sin, and that has to be removed in order for us to be reconciled and then to have peace with God. So what God did was he covered the sins of Israel through this yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and then when the sacrifice of Christ was made, he removed their sins, and that came through that perfect sacrifice of Christ. Now, I might just remind you again, that although we are talking about the Old Testament and we're speaking of things that happened thousands of years ago, the removal of sin is just as real a problem today as it was then. Sin must also be removed today. Now, most people have the idea that God cares little about sin. God really doesn't care how we live our lives. Uh, He really likes concern with what goes on with us day by day. God just loves us so much that he overlooks our sin. And so everybody is naturally at peace with God. And you come to this year of Christmas, and and people are talking about peace on earth, and they think that, well, God is just so happy with us, and God, uh, we have peace with God now. And so we think that the thing to do is just take that little smiley sticker and put it on your lapel or stick it on your Bible on the middle of your forehead or wherever, and that means that God loves me, and I love God. I love God. He loves me. And we have this Barney relationship with God. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that no one is at peace with God. The truth is that God hates sin just as much as he ever did. And the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the Jesus of the New Testament is the God in the Old Testament. And he hates sin. He's always abhorred sin. And the Bible says that God also hates the sinner. Now, that's something that you don't hear preach too much today. Uh, But God hates the sinner when that sin is upon him. Now, never think for a moment that you're at peace with God and there's no need for you to be reconciled. Enmity exists between you and God, and the only way that it can ever be taken away is through that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You must trust in that in order to be free from your sin and be reconciled to God. So, in the Old Testament... 
this fasting was particular. It was a peculiar way of showing all of this. So on the Day of Atonement, one time per year, it was commanded. And I think that it was done that way is so that fasting would not be so common that they would forget its purpose, that they would forget what it's supposed to be associated with. It's associated with mourning for sin and with repentance and with reconciliation. So there you have a one-time proclamation of the fast, and that is the sum total of all the commands that ever made in the Old Testament concerning fasting. It's the only time that God ever said that they were to fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But we read through the Old Testament and we find that there are many other times of fasting. Israel practiced fasting and whenever there was national mourning, they continued to fast and they mourned over sin when they needed repentance. And then there were times uh, when they were mourning, for instance, when Saul and Jonathan died. And we read in the Word of God that Israel fasted because of their deaths. In the book of Uh, Nehemiah, we find there that Nehemiah and Ezra gathered the people together at the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And there was a fast that was proclaimed. And the people came in mourning. They were saddened because they had not obeyed God's law. And as the word of God was read, they came in clothes of mourning and they fasted before God. Now there we see that each time that they fasted, it was associated with grief and sorrow. Now, keep that in your mind because in a couple of weeks when we come back to it, we're going to see that that's very important. Fasting is associated with grief and sorrow. And fasting was so closely associated with mourning that it was assumed when you had times when you were in deep sorrow that you just wouldn't eat. You wouldn't eat, and so you would have a self-proclaimed fast. We have an illustration of that in the New Testament of how fasting went beyond the original command when Jesus was asked by John's disciples. They came to him and they asked a question. They said, well, why uh, do, do, do the disciples of John, why do we fast and do the Pharisees fast often? But Jesus, you and your disciples do not fast. Now, we read about this in Matthew chapter 9 where it says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Now, you see, it was just naturally assumed by these people that uh, fasting is an act of religious piety. Even John's disciples were confused about it. And so they came to Jesus and asked the question. But we see there that the fasting was connected with mourning. And Jesus said, well, the disciples don't fast. We don't do it because what do they have to be unhappy about? He says, I'm with them. I'm, I'm, I'm with them. Why would they mourn when the bridegroom is with them? And he says, there's coming a time when I'm going to be gone. Then they'll mourn and then they will fast. So this is what we see then in the Old Testament. The command there is corporate fasting. It's the whole nation, one day per year. And aside from that, God never said that any individual or even the nation had to do it often. So that's the Old Testament practice. Well, we know that, that much has changed. Uh, there is a great deal of argument about the Old Testament, about which things are written in the Old Testament that should be carried over into the New 
And if you remember, when we were studying in chapter 5, we talked about this, where we have the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial laws that are all in the Old Testament. And we kind of, those things kind of blend together sometimes. And so we may wonder, well, well, how much of that that's in the Old Testament is to be brought over into New Testament times? Well, one thing that we do know for sure, that this area of fasting was vastly different by the time it came to Jesus when he was here on the earth. It was very different from the command given in the Old Testament. So they had gone well beyond the one day of fasting and beyond corporate fasting. So next we want to look into the New Testament and we want to see the New Testament perversions of fasting. Now here then is the real crux of Jesus' statement in Matthew 6. The purpose of bringing this up is to address perversions of fasting. Now, fasting was a religious exercise, and it was indicative of the way that they worshipped. And so Jesus is dealing in this section with perversions of worship. So they were wrong about their giving. We saw that. They're wrong about praying, and they're also wrong about fasting. Now, that tells us that in their acts of personal devotion, all of that was way out of kilter. And what they did was they practiced worship in relation to self in the wrong way. Now, their acts of devotion were wrong, but, but it's because it was more elevation of self than it was elevation of God. They did this for self and not to be worshiping Jehovah God. And what you can't do, you can't ever worship self and worship God at the same time. And we also see here that there's always danger when you go away from God's plan. God had a specific plan in the Old Testament. Whenever you begin to deviate from what God says, then somewhere along the line, you're going to run into trouble. Now, this is what happened in the New Testament times. They went wrong basically in two ways about fasting. They were wrong, first of all, about frequent fasting. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, God says one day of fasting. That's all that's commanded. Well, I suppose then that the Jews thought if one day of fasting is good, then two days must be twice as good. And if two days is good, then four days must be four times as good. And on and on you go. And so by the time that you get to Jesus uh, in his time, there were many, many different days of fasting. And people thought that this was a way that you showed your holiness. Now, if you think about it, if they had stuck to the Old Testament reason for fasting, then they would have defeated their own purpose with the frequent fasting. You see, what they're doing here is they're trying to prove how holy they are, how righteous that they are, when in fact, fasting was for repentance and to show that you've committed sin, horrible sin. That's why you would fast. Now, if you mourn for sin when you fast and you need to repent of sin when you fast, then frequent fasting must mean that you're often sinning and you're often in need of repentance. You see how it goes wrong? And such is the way when people begin to twist the Word of God and begin to change things, they become self-deluded and their religion becomes self-defeating. But that's the way the practice was in the time of Jesus. It was frequent fasting. Now those times in the Old Testament where uh, the people went beyond that one time command to fast and extended to the other days and for other purposes, they just kept building up and building up and building up till, the, till you come to the end of the Old Testament and there was a lot of fasting going on because they were adding and adding to the Word. Now I'm not necessarily criticizing this particular part of it. I don't think that they were wrong for fasting if that fasting was heartfelt. 
If there really was sin in their lives and they mourned because of their sin and they wanted to show that they were sorry for their sins before God, I don't think that God would, said, would have said, well, no, no, don't fast. And I don't think that God would say, uh, well, I think you're showing too much emotion over this. I mean, this is not really so bad. Sin is not such a serious thing. Lighten up a little bit, fellows. You're taking it way too seriously. I don't think God would have said that. God wouldn't have shut them down if they had real contrition about sin. And folks, that's because you cannot underestimate the seriousness of sin. And I think it's a lesson that we desperately need to learn. What we do is we think, well, I don't commit big sins. Maybe I've got little sins in my life, just the little things, and they're not so bad. But every sin that a person commits is like stabbing a knife in the heart of God. Do you remember the sin that that caused the whole human race to fall? That was a bite out of one little piece of forbidden fruit. Just one bite. And that plunged the whole human race into perpetual darkness. And did you know if it was something else, that if it was some other sin, that the result would have been the same? If it hadn't been the bite out of the fruit, if it had been some other type of sin, then the result would have been exactly the same. Well, let 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 me just give you an example. If Adam had a little bit of gossip to tell. And that was the very first sin that was committed. The result for the human race would have been exactly the same. If Adam had decided that he was going to tell Eve a little white lie, that is a sin, and the result of that sin would be the very same as taking that bite out of that forbidden fruit. You see, the whole human race is condemned because of sin. Now, You see, the kind of sin is actually immaterial. The fact that it's sin, that's the important thing. It's disobedience to God as all sins are. Now, all sins are condemning sins, no matter how little that we think they are. Now, the Roman Catholic Church likes to split up sins between the venial sins and the mortal sins. The truth of the matter is, all sin is mortal sin. Any sin can condemn you to an eternity in hell. And so you needn't think that you can separate, I'm not so bad after all. Sin condemns people to hell. And so God was not going to tell Israel to stop fasting if they were doing it because they were sorrowful over sin. But there was a lot of fasting going on. And it kept adding up and adding up to the place that it was so common in their religious system that worshiping God actually had to have this aspect. That you weren't considered to be holy and righteous unless you were involved in some kind of a fast. It's a demonstration of religious piety. Now we read that a moment ago when Jesus was asked the question by John's disciples. Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but you and your disciples don't fast? And they ask it because it was such a common religious practice. That was at least a weekly observance. And anybody who was considered to be a good Jew must be one who fast. Now, just to show you how pious that they had become, we think back about that famous prayer and the example that Jesus gave of that Pharisee who prayed. And when he was praying, he was talking to God about the values of his virtuous life. And here's what he says. This is in Luke 18. He says, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And listen, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, what is he saying here is the proof of his piety, of his holiness before God. Well, it's not just that he doesn't extort, and it's not just that, he, or that he's not unjust. It's not just that he's not an adulterer. 
His value to God has also been established, he thinks, by the fact that he fasts twice in a week. Now there you see that it's no longer a one-time yearly observance on the Day of Atonement. This man was fasting at least 104 times per year. That's what I would call frequent fasting. One-third of his life was spent fasting. There's nobody in here that's that righteous and holy, are we? Nobody here is going to spend one-third of their life fasting, but they did it because they thought that's what made them righteous in the eyes of God. And so, it's to that group of people that Jesus came and talked about fasting. They thought it's a measurement of holiness, and what Jesus did was to set some things straight. Here is a problem of worship in personal devotion. Now, in truth, the fasting that they did was just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that Jesus tackled fasting because here's one thing that really was so common. I mean, he could have gone to, a, a multiple, to multiple different things to speak about, but this particular one is so commonplace. It is so naturally assumed that it's an indicator of holiness that this is the one that Jesus deals with. Now, what he could have done, as I said, he could have addressed something else. And he could have said something that's far more easily recognizable to us today because we don't actually practice fasting so much. And so the whole idea might be kind of lost on us. I mean, we would never think, well, that's what makes a person holy? You mean having a fast? That doesn't make sense to us. So we might look at something else. So let's consider something else for just a moment, maybe something that makes a little bit more sense to us, and we'll come back to fasting in just a moment. There's a comment that Jesus makes in Matthew 23, verse number 5, about hypocrisy. Now listen to what he says. He's making a point about outward demonstrations. There would be things like fasting, but outward demonstrations that they thought would show holiness. And so he makes this comment about the Pharisees. He said, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, what does he mean by that? What's he talking about when he says phylacteries? Now, we've discussed that a little bit before in an earlier part of Matthew, and we have some pictures that I want to show you here. Uh, We took some pictures at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, and phylacteries are these little wooden boxes, or leather boxes, rather, that they put on their heads. They would tie around their heads, and in those little boxes, they would put verses of Scripture. And then they'd also do this. They would take uh, leather straps and they would bind them around their arms and that was a phylactery. Now that's what they did uh, in order to show their holiness. And the Jews are still practicing that today and that's why I have the pictures of this. But we also notice here that Jesus says they enlarge the borders of their garments. Now what the Jews would do is they would widen out the fringes on their garments. I mean, you have a robe, a long sleeve robe, and you might widen out this border or widen out the one that's down at the feet. And on those borders of their clothes, they would put ribbons of blue. And the purpose of that was that to show they were separated to God. Well, the Jews <laughs> kept making these borders larger and larger and larger and kept putting the blue on them till I suppose that eventually all they had was a border, clear up to their arms, I can imagine. Because they thought that's what made them holy. Made them holy. Where does that come from? Well, we read it in Numbers 15, verse 38. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of borders a ribbon of blue. 
Now, what we have here then in the time of Jesus was this is one of the things they did as a demonstration of holiness. And so their holiness is also shown by the clothes that they wear. And so you can still see it today. Now, we had the pictures up there a moment ago, and you notice things like those big, black, broad-brimmed hats that they wear and the big, heavy, black coats that they wear. That is a symbol of their religious piety. Now, I asked our Jewish guide if I could buy one of those big black hats and take one of those home. And she said, well, I can tell you where you can get one. They cost about $1,800. And I said, well, I think I'll take home a few plastic bookmarkers instead. And so that's what I did. But don't we see that very same thing today? Because there are people who think that the clothes that you wear are an indicator of your holiness. And so if girls wear culottes instead of slacks, and they wear dresses that go all the way down to the floor, then that must mean that they're holier than somebody else. Now, let me make a point about this. There is certainly nothing wrong with you young ladies, women, men, whoever it is, of dressing decently. You ought to dress decently. You ought to look like somebody who is a child of God. I mean, the people can look at you and say, well, there is something different about you. And that you cover yourself up and you look like you're supposed to look. But if you take it to the point that you say that, well, those clothes that I wear are the indicator of my holiness. And because I do wear them, that means that I'm holy. Then you've fallen into exactly the same trap that the scribes and Pharisees fell into. Now, people are sadly mistaken if they think that their clothing is going to make them holy before God. Now, that leads me then to perhaps the most atrocious perversion that they had, and this is also wrong, and that is false fasting. False fasting is fasting for appearance sake. Now, it really has nothing at all to do with the heart. In one sense, in another sense, you might say it has everything to do with the heart because what it is is an external demonstration that people would do in order to show that they were holy when actually their hearts were as black as coal. Now, it's the hypocrisy of putting up a front. It's a mask that you wear to fool people. Now, if you haven't heard about where we get this word hypocrisy, it's really an interesting term. It's actually a theater term. In the ancient theater, there were actors that were called upon to play more than one part. Now, you might remember that even in the time of Shakespeare, that women were not allowed to have a part in the play. And so they would have men that played the women. And when they played the women or they played another part, they had to have a mask. They had something to disguise themselves. So the men in these theater uh, productions, they would wear a mask. And so they play a woman, they wear a mask. And the intent, of course, is to be a disguise. The mask hides, hides what they really are. Now, the word hypocrite actually comes from that term. Or it comes from this, an actor playing a part in a play. So a hypocrite today is defined as someone who plays a part. They're acting like something that they really aren't. Now, that is what the Jews did. They pretended to be holy, and they really weren't holy. They just loved to put on the mask. Now, their mask here... Not a literal mask, of course, but it comes in the form of appearing to fast. And so it was common for the people to put on old clothes and they would pour ashes on their head and when, there, when there were times of sorrow and mourning. And this is why Jesus says in the 16th verse, he says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, 
For they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. So they're dressing up and showing that they're fasting. Now, it may be true that they were fasting. Sometimes they they were indeed fasting. But the reason for fasting was not sorrow over their sin. And it wasn't because they were repenting of any sins. The reason that they fasted was because they wanted everybody else to know how spiritual they were. And so they would go out into public with their long faces, and they would have the ashes on their foreheads and in their hair. Now, if their interest had really been that they wanted to entreat God, then what they would have done, they would have stayed at home. They would have sorrowed at home. And then if they did have to go out, they would have cleaned themselves up, and they would have washed their faces, and they would have combed their hair. And that way no one would know that they were actually fasting. Now that's what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18. But when, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now he's telling us here that nobody really needs to know about this but God. If that's what you're really interested in, and if you really are interested in, in what God thinks about this and you're mourning over sin and repenting, God's the only one who needs to know about it. Now, if you're interested in proving how holy you are and you want this outward show so that people will look at you and say, wow, what a Christian that is. And I sure wish I was like them. They are so holy. Then he says, you're, you have your reward. The approbation of gullible people is all that you get out of that because God is not impressed. And folks, it doesn't matter again whether we're talking about fasting. It can be anything that you do in this church. If your purpose is to show yourself and you're trying to prove to somebody how holy that you are, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. Now you see what Jesus is doing? He's giving us examples of righteous religion and personal devotion. You worship God wrongly if you're doing for it for the purpose to be observed by others. That's not worshiping God. That's worshiping self. It turns all the attention to you rather than to God. Now let me wind things down today because we do have another part of the message and we're going to get into the subject about whether we should fast today. When is fasting appropriate? Are we doing it rightly? Are we doing it wrongly? And there is an obvious change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we're going to get into that. But as we look at it right now, what is the great lesson that we've learned from this thus far? And you should see this, whether we're talking about giving or praying or fasting, and you should see it from all the discussions that we had in chapter 5. Righteous religion, in one sense, is not about what you do. And in another sense, it's all about what you do. It's not about what you do if your purpose is to seek righteousness through things like giving and praying and fasting. Again, that's the trap of the scribes and Pharisees. They thought that if giving a little brought a blessing from God and that made you righteous, then giving a lot would make you even more righteous. If praying means that you're holy, then surely the most eloquent prayers that you can pray and the longest prayers that you can pray, and you're often speaking in prayers, if that's what makes you holy and righteous, then the more that you do it, the more righteous that you're going to be. When it comes down to fasting, if fasting one time a year is holy and righteous before God, then just imagine how righteous and holy a person must be who fasts 104 times per year. 
Now, in that sense, if you do it for that, it's totally wasted as far as God is concerned. God is not interested in that because your best efforts working through things like that is never going to be good enough for God. You can stop trying that right now. Now, on the other hand, righteous religion is about what you do. When your heart has been purified by faith in Jesus Christ, it develops into works for God that are done for the purpose of glorifying God and God alone. A righteous person will do righteousness. Why? Because that's his character. His heart has been purified by faith, and the natural outcome of that are righteous works. And so you don't have to pretend to be anything because that's what you are. You have a heart that's been cleansed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it can't do anything other than to work its way outward for the glory of God. Now, righteous acts flow from righteous character. Now, I would submit to you today that there's only two people who know anything about your heart at all and that's you and God. You can do all kinds of things to fool me and others in the church And if you accomplish that, then I applaud you for the adeptness of your acting ability. But you see, fooling me and fooling others really doesn't count for anything. You don't answer to me, and you don't answer to others. The one that you must answer to is God. Now, I'm going to ask you to do for yourself what Jesus had to do to these people. You see, they wouldn't admit their hypocrisy. And so Jesus brings out the examples to show them what real hypocrites they are. And I'm telling you, don't wait until God does it to you. Someday you're going to be exposed, and when you are, friend, it will count forever. Now, there's an old song that says, How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. Is it black by sin? Is it pure within Could you ask Christ to come in to stay? People often see you as you are outside. Jesus really knows you, for he sees inside. How about your heart? Is it right with God? That's the thing that counts today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we see the importance here of a heart that's been made righteous by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we look into this, I pray that you would examine our hearts and help us to do the same. May we look in and see if there's anything there that is done to glorify, for the purpose of glorifying us. And if there is, we ask you, Lord, to remove that from us. And we pray that all glory and all honor would go to you. And I pray, Lord, for some lost person here today who hasn't received you in faith. May they understand that Uh, there's nothing that they can do to be righteous in your eyes. And one day there's going to be an accounting. They'll stand before you. Your books will be opened and they will be judged by all the sins that they have committed. Lord, help them to understand that they must be covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Bring them to repentance and faith today so they may realize that the only way to be righteous is to have Christ's righteousness given to us by faith. Bless in this time that we sing. Uh, today. Be with us, Lord, and we thank you for just the Word of God that we've been able to look into today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.